Hi, and welcome to Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast brought to you by HBC Heritage. I'm your host, David McGuffin, and I'm sad to say that this is our last episode on the journey we've been taking into the history of Canada as seen through the prism of the Hudson's Bay Company as it turns 350 years old. And to wrap things up, we're headed back down into the Hudson's Bay Company vaults for one last conversation with Amelia Fay the curator of the HBC collection at the Manitoba Museum in Winnipeg. That collection includes some tens of thousands of items, and as we discover today, many of these cultural and historical artifacts were donated by fur traders and factors working for the HBC. Among the donors was my great-great-grandfather, Julian Campsell. In the late 19th century, He was the chief factor for the HBC in the Mackenzie District in what is now the Northwest and Yukon Territories, an area about the size of Western Europe. And as an example of what HBC fur traders were donating to the collection, Amelia pulled out three items given by Julian Campsell. But before we get to that, I first want to play you a recording describing Julian Campsell and his life in the North. It's by Philip Scott Campsell the ninth of Julian and Sarah Campbell's 11 children. He's also the younger brother of Royal Canadian Geographical Society founding president, Charles Campbell. This recording was made in the late 1960s when Philip was 85 years old for a radio program called Voice of the Pioneer. It begins with Philip recalling how his father came to Canada with the British Army and how Julian Campbell would reminisce about his regiment being inspected by the Duke of Wellington the general who defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. Duke Wellington was then prime minister in his old age. Well, they sent the battalion to Canada, and he was stationed at Kingston and Three Rivers, and then during the arguments with the American about the boundary, you know, a company of this uh, battalion was sent out to the Red River. The way they got here, they... uh, went out to York Factory on Hudson's Bay and then came up the river by canoe. That was about 1857-58. Well, he joined the Hudson's Bay Company, Father did, and uh, they sent him out to the Mackenzie River. When he arrived at Fort Simpson, they sent him up the Lior and Nelson Rivers, up to Fort Nelson, where a great many of the family were born. He was just a clerk to start with. And then he moved along through all these various stages, you know, from clerk to trader and junior chief trader and factor, junior chief factor, and then chief factor. He had uh, something like a million square miles of territory to cover during the year, mostly by canoe or by dog team in the wintertime. Of course, he didn't do any work. He rode in a carry-all, where the rest of us ran behind the team. <laughs> so, it was an administrative job. He had to visit all these various posts at least once a year, and it kept him busy. I don't remember what he's what, what, particular what he did. Just uh, checked over the posts to see that things were going properly. Now, let's turn to some of the items Julian collected in his 41 years with the HBC in the Arctic. Amelia helpfully sent us pictures of all the items she'll describe here. You can find them on our website at cangeo.ca forward slash explore. Here's HBC collection curator, 
Amelia Fay. Yeah, so you're right that um, Julian wasn't sort of the only one that was collecting. I think a lot of early fur traders um, in their interactions with local peoples were collecting items and sending them back home. So you even find artifacts from earlier periods um, in museums in the United Kingdom because, of course, if they went back to Scotland, they took those objects with them. Um, and so that's how the early museum collection came to be, was through donations from former fur traders, uh, like your family, uh, who donated to the collection. So when you mentioned his name, I searched our records, and we actually have 19 artifacts linked to your family oh, in amazing. of our 27,000 artifacts in the collection. Um, and they're, they're beautiful pieces that um, are largely, uh, you can tell, he worked in the Western Arctic in the Mackenzie region. Um, so some of the items that I was looking at and pulling for you and I to chat about were things like there's this really great small ulu, which is an Inuit knife. It's got a curved semi-lunar blade, great for, you know, processing skins, even cutting meat. It's almost like a multi-purpose knife in many ways. Yeah. So kind of a triangular shaped knife with a handle on the top. And yeah. It looks like it'd be super useful in a kitchen even today. Yeah. And I, uh, like I have an Ulu and I use it for cutting pizza. <laughs> it's a yeah. great pizza cutter. Um, and so, yeah, and it, it's kind of similar to those, um, I think they're called Mesa Luna knives that people use for herbs even. You can rock it back and forth. Mm -hmm. So they're still a useful, useful tool. Um, and Ulus come in many different shapes and there's kind of different purposes for different styles. Um, so this, this little Ulu is just beautiful though. And that would be Inuit? Yeah, it would be Inuit. Um, so there's... Um, and, and across the Arctic, a lot of different Inuit communities have Ulus, so it's um, not regionally specific to the Inuvialuit, but, uh, but this particular one is from that region. And there's um, this incredible pair of scissors that I pulled out this morning that are actually, they have an antler handle, and they've taken, probably repurposed a, a metal blade from something else, uh, so cut it into scissor blades, and made these perfect little pair of scissors, and they're just... Yeah, they're just stunning. Like the the little holes carved in the antler handle for your finger loops. Like it's it's an it's amazing. It's so that's all one piece. That handle. It's all yeah. Yeah, it's incredible because it looks like a. I mean, it's no. It's recognizable as a pair of scissors. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. really neat. Yeah, and we and we don't know where that's from, but you think probably also Western Arctic or yeah yeah. So just based on where where he worked, so we have the records of where Julian was working. Uh, and the style and the materials. So there's even a muskox um, horn blubber pounder. Well, muskox, of course, uh, quite abundant over in the Western Arctic as well. So definitely you can kind of connect it through the records of where the individual worked um, because, of course, they weren't often recording. Like, I collected this from this person. And that's one of the things that's sort of missing in the HBC collection is we often have artifacts linked to the, the fur traders, um, but not necessarily linked to the people who made and used the artifacts. Right, 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 right. Uh, so the next one you have is, I think, my favorite, just in terms of how it looks. And you want to describe that to us? The Blubber Pounder? The Blubber Pounder, which is also a great name, yeah. It is a great name. Uh, and it's, it's beautiful. I mean, it's this muskox horn, and they've even carved... I'm just going to grab it again here. The, the perfect little grooves for your fingers to hold it, and it's got this really great surface for, for pounding blubber. Um, but what I also love about it is it has one of the original tags. So these artifacts were part of that original museum collection that was pulled together in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. um, and they have these really great handwritten tags with this handwriting from the first curator. And so on here it says, Beater for Blubber, made from muskox horn. Um, so it's just, yeah, it's a nice addition to the, to the artifact because it's got the handwritten tag. 
Nice. That is incredible. So just sort of researching him myself, Julian Campbell, I came across some notes in the among Smithsonian records about him actually collecting uh, like flowers and things for the Smithsonian collection and passing it along to them. And um, was that also typical of what they were doing up there, a lot of these factors? Yeah, it was um, a definitely common practice for HBC employees to also partake in scientific collecting. Um, and so a lot of early collections for the Smithsonian, as well as for museums in, in London, um, so different plant and animal specimens were collected and sent over for study and for their own collections. So a, a lot of early scientific knowledge from the region came from these fur traders who often acquired it through their local First Nations guides or Inuit guides who were helping them in the region. So a lot of what we know about plant and animal diversity um, came from through these fur trade connections. Interesting. I mean, I guess these guys are a long way from their own cultures. And I, this is probably an, an interesting way for them to stay connected too, I imagine. Yeah, I think so. And I think there's a lot of uh, downtime too at, at a lot of these remote posts. And so what do you do to fill your downtime? Um, you go out exploring. So it seems like a lot of, a lot of them did kind of embrace, I mean, the types of people that that were employed in the fur trade went largely for, I think, monetary reasons. The pay was reasonably good compared to what they could get back home. Um, but also, I think, a sense of adventure. Um, so the idea of going someplace completely kind of relatively unknown to them and their home communities. Um, so yeah, undoubtedly, when they're here, they're, they're exploring a little bit, at least around the post, um, and seeing some of the different flora and fauna. Nice. So you, I mean, you're sitting on an incredible treasure trove of things there, which I think speaks to the Hudson's Bay. I mean, it's a, it's a company, it's a fur trading company, but it's a massive bureaucracy that is pretty adept at cataloging and keeping all this stuff, isn't it? Yeah. So what makes kind of Winnipeg a really cool spot for any fur trade uh, historians or people just interested in the fur trade is that we've got the archives. So they kept all of their paper records from post journals. Um, and those are all available just a few blocks away from the museum with our good buddies at the Provincial Archives. And then we've got the artifact collection here at the Manitoba Museum. And that's, again, just a really great archive. And it's 100 years old now, this collection of when it was kind of pulled together. Some of the objects, of course, predate that. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's a really great resource for when you're thinking about the fur trade and, and what people were wearing, what were they using, what were they doing? And you can learn about all of that here. Amazing. I mean, I just remember this quote from Peter C. Newman who wrote, you know, sort of the great history of the Hudson Bay Company. And he said, it's the, you know, the greatest archive in the world outside of the Vatican, which is pretty lofty company. It is, but I mean, it's, it's incredible. And a lot of the, um, HBC employees that were writing in these posts, journals and logbooks, like they recorded everything. So there's so much information, even if the fur trade isn't necessarily your niche, but there's scientific information, there's weather recordings, there's, you know, species recordings of plants and animals. So depending on what your research area or interests are, there's something you can find in that, in those documents that would be of great use for, for research. Uh, just one last question. Is there, do you, is there a specific item in that collection, in your collection, that you just love? There's a lot of things that are, that are pretty incredible in this collection, but one of the things that I really just love, and it's on display in the, so we have the HBC gallery downstairs. Um, and so when people do come visit, it's beautiful. It's actually part of a, a Tikkanagan or a cradle board for a baby. And what I love about it is that it's um, it incorporates different technologies. So it's got quill work, beadwork, 
the metal tinkling cones, and even little thimbles that they've drilled a hole through to make tinkling. Um, and so this is part of the cradle board that would be facing out. So we're missing the back part where the baby would be sort of strapped onto. But all these kind of beautiful decorations and flourishes, the sound of the, the, the tinkling cones and the thimbles as they jingled as the mom walked, like it would soothe the baby. Like I just think it's so much effort and work went into something that's relatively utilitarian, um, but yet would have really made for that baby's experience, just being close to their mom and walking. And it's just beautiful. I love it. No, yeah, lovely. And the, the baby industry was big then too, obviously. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been really helpful, Amelia. I th thank you for sort of uh, opening the door in this pandemic time so we can peek inside the museum collection. And I'm sure lots of people would love to get out there once things get back to normal. Yeah, thank you for joining me. And hopefully you can join in person and come see these artifacts that are linked to your family. I would love that. So everyone head out to the Manitoba Museum, right? Yeah, for sure. That was Amelia Fay, curator of the HBC collection housed at the Manitoba Museum in Winnipeg. And that's it for this special series marking the 350th anniversary of the Hudson's Bay Company here on Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. Thank you so much for joining us on this journey. And thanks as well to our sponsor, HBC Heritage, for making this series possible. To learn more about this remarkable fur trading empire that once controlled one-twelfth of the Earth's landmass, visit hbcheritage.ca. And thanks as well to all of my guests in this series and to my colleagues at Canadian Geographic for their help and support, especially John Geiger, Gilles Gagné, Aaron Kiley, Alex Pope, Angelica Haggart, and Sarah Legault. Music for this podcast is by Evan McDonald, and that wonderful waterfall of Explorer voices featured in each episode is by our own founding sound engineer, Robin Dumas of SoundShield Studios. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. Give us a rating, tell your friends about us, and please share these episodes on social media. And so until next time, when we explore again, I'm David McGuffin. We have Simpson about June 10th with the Fur Brigade, consisting of a number of York boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, Inuit, it means that Inuit or history is very strong. And we flew all over every inch of the country that it could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, I guess 160 dives or so. There are shrimp fish swimming around outside. It's just fabulous here. Well, I'm a first for Canada. Thank you.